0: Well, good morning. I want to begin the, the message this morning by doing a, a little word association game with you. Uh, we're going to put an image up on the screen, and I want you to tell me what comes to your mind. And just so you know, the first two services got every one of them right, okay? So I'm sure they're pretty easy. You'll, get it, you'll do well, I'm sure. So the first image is, okay, app, Apple computers, right? You know, they, they changed the world with their technology. Next one. Facebook, again, changed the world with social media interaction and whatnot. And the last one Kansas City Royals. Okay, they're not having the greatest year, but we still claim them. Now, it's interesting how we see certain images and certain things pop into our, our minds. I want to begin with a question What do you think of? What's the first thing that pops into your mind when you hear the word God? Or, or a corollary question. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? What do you associate with the word Christian or Christ follower? Today we're going to be looking at the defining characteristic of both God and his people. And to do that, we're going to be looking at 1 John. We've been looking at 1 John the last few weeks. It's a letter written by John, one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was known as the apostle of of, of love. And he wrote three letters, um, and the first one here we're looking at was written to the church in, in Ephesus. And we've seen as we've looked at the John's letter the fat past few weeks that there are three qualities or characteristics or three tests that is to be asked of everybody who claims to be a Christ follower. There is the truth test. In other words, there are certain things we must believe if we say we're a Christian. There are things that are debatable, of course, but there are certain essentials that we must believe If we claim to be a follower of Christ, there is the um, obedience test. Uh, There are certain things that our lives must be characterized by by obedience rather than disobedience or sin or apathy. And then finally, there's the love test. We must love others because Christ has first loved us. I'm going to elaborate a little bit on these three. The truth test is pretty simple. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he was fully God, that he was fully human, that he is the only solution for our sin problem? He died on the cross for our sins. Some in Ephesus apparently did not believe this, but John asserts, the gospels assert, Paul asserts, Jesus himself asserts that we must believe this. And so the most important question that we can ever answer in life is who is Jesus Christ? And our answer to this question will determine everything. We must hold to this truth if we want to follow Christ. That is the truth test. The second test is the obedience test. It's also simple, but a little bit uh, daunting or intimidating. If we have faith, we will obey God's commandments. If we have faith, it will result in the way we live our lives. We'll have different values, different priorities. We'll treat people differently. We'll speak differently. We'll think differently. And those who do not know or follow Christ. Now, John, in his letter, talks about a couple different things that give us this uh, contrast between those who follow Christ and those who don't. The first one is the contrast of light. He says, God is light. And if we know him, we'll live in the light, too. And he's talking about truth. God is physical light, but he also is truth. And if we love Christ, we'll live in the light and in the truth as well. Now, now, John is not saying we are to be perfect, because nobody's perfect, of course. We all fall short. But he is saying that our lives will have a tendency, a leaning. We'll either lean toward, toward obedience, towards honoring God with our lives, or towards disobedience, or apathy, or rebellion. Those are the first two characteristics or tests, the truth and obedience. But today we're going to focus on the third one, which is love. Now, why is love so important to John? As you read through his letter, it's, 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 the whole letter is littered with, with the word love and concepts of love. Why is love so important to John? Well, as you read it, because of this. Love, he says, is a defining characteristic of God... And it stands to follow is to be the defining characteristic of God's people. So John makes two statements about God in this book that are profound and shape everything else. God is light and God is love. In First John 1, 5, he says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So in other words, if God is light, we can't walk in the darkness. But it's also the second statement John makes about God that changes everything. First John 4, 7-8 Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, if God is truly love that will change how we live. But what does it mean that God is love? If you search for an image for love on the internet there's all sorts of things that pop up but here's one that I thought was kind of appropriate for the day a picture of two people obviously they're in love they've got their wedding rings on they're holding a heart they've committed to each other they have strong feelings and passion for each other and that's the way we tend to think of love is as a strong feeling a strong passion for something or someone Uh, we think of romantic love Uh, We think of the love of a mother for a newborn or the love of a father for his son or child. So when we hear that God is love, we we tend to associate with with feelings, with, with, with emotions, which can be frustrating because feelings ebb and flow. Feelings come and go, don't they? They change. They're fickle. So what kind of love is John talking about? What does it mean that God is is love? I like this definition by Wayne Grudem, a theologian. He writes, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. Now, if there's anybody who does not have to give of himself to others, it's God. He does not owe us anything. We owe him everything. And yet God is generous. His nature is is to give. Grudem's second part says, it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. I want you to think about this. At the center of this vast universe in which we live is love. I I, I, I want to read for you a couple quotes from some Christian thinkers. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. That's by Cornelius Platinga. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing nor a static thing, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a kind of drama almost, if you will, not thinking irreverent, a kind of dance the pattern of this three-personal life, the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Now that's like, well, that's a lot of words. But I just quoted C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Platt, and they are arguably the most influential philosopher of this past century. What are they saying about God and about love? They're saying at the very center of this universe is divine, self-giving love. At the very center of who God is, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is divine, self-giving love. So when John says that God is love, he's not saying that God is, is an emotion or strong feeling. It's not some sort of metaphysical statement. He's saying the most defining characteristic of God is love. There are many things we can say about God. He's just, he's powerful, he's sovereign, he's holy, he's gracious, he's kind, he's patient. All of them wonderful, all of them true. But John argues that love is the most remarkable, is the most defining of who God is. He gives us a compelling compelling example of God's love for us in verses 8 and 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sins. So God expresses his love most powerfully by sending Christ to die in our place. there's something else that's important for us to, to pay attention to. At the very heart of us as human beings is this belief that we're not sure we can really trust God. I mean, that's really what sin is at its core. I know better than God. God doesn't have the best in mind for me. We see this recorded way back in Genesis. You know, The original sin of Adam and Eve was what? They didn't believe that God had the best in mind for them. They didn't trust. They thought he was holding out on them, that there was more, that they needed to take control and, 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 and take what was theirs. We somehow worry that God does not have our best interests at heart. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, why does God do this? Or if I was God, I would do this. We seem to think sometimes we know better than God himself. But what John is telling us is that nobody will ever love us more than God. That there is nobody who cares for us more than God. And that we can trust Him even when we don't understand Him. Because love is the defining characteristic of God. It's also supposed to be the defining characteristic of His people. Listen again from John, what, what he says about love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in them? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So John gets very practical here. Doesn't let us off the hook. We want to know what love looks like. He says... Follow the example of the one who laid his life down for you. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, he says, which is a high standard. That's a high bar to clear. Are we actually being called to die for other people? Maybe. But usually it will look a lot more ordinary than that. So Don translates what this means in more ordinary and practical terms. He says, if anybody has the world's goods and sees somebody in need, but doesn't help them out, does God's love abide in them? He says, love in deed and in truth. So laying down our lives is not just about the few who will run into burning buildings or be involved in some dramatic rescue. It will look like more ordinary things. You've you probably heard of the butterfly effect. this idea that a butterfly flaps its wings and in South America, and changes the weather in Kansas. Well, the Bible often describes a similar butterfly effect for this spiritual life. According to Jesus, when we do small things in his name, when we meet needs in his name, like make a meal or visit the sick, or comfort the bereaved, befriend the lonely, open our home to a guest, pray with a, with a friend, when we do these things, these acts of love add up and have an effect on a, on a grander scale. It changes us. It changes others. It changes the, the, the culture in which we live. I mean, that's what love looks like. Laying down our lives by meeting others' needs. Practical needs. Demonstrating the love of God for them. Following the example of Jesus Christ. I know many of you do this on a very regular basis. And uh, I want to use an example that is very fresh for me. Um, some of you might know Orville and Frieda Nye. And uh, they've been part of our church for many, many years. Uh, went to our first service faithfully until they were unable to physically to do that any longer. Um, Orville just uh, died this weekend. It was almost 95. They've been married 62 years. Uh, faithfully involved in our church. But the interesting thing about them is that they were both only children when they married. They had no children, so they have no relatives. I mean, zero relatives, none whatsoever. In the past 12, 15 years of of their lives, there have been a handful of men in our church who have stepped forward to help them with their financial record keeping, to help them with doctor's visits and bills car repairs, and then as they transition into uh, long-term care, they've helped with that, power of attorney, all of these things, helping them to plan all the details. Uh, and it's been a wonderful thing to see these men uh, exhibit very practically the love of Christ for these wonderful, wonderful old saints. We're called to do the same, to follow the example of Jesus Christ, to meet practical needs because God has first loved us through Christ Jesus you know, one of the things we've been doing this past year is looking at one of our priorities as a church, which is disciple. We just find that as a verb. It's a lifelong journey, doing journey, doing life with others in Christ, in Jesus Christ. And we've looked at four questions to try to help us flesh out what that looks like. And one of the questions is, in what ways is Jesus calling you to serve or share your faith with another person? Another way to put it would be, in what ways can I practically show the love of Christ? to somebody else. And so I want to give you a chance to do that. I know a couple of... uh, Wes did this a week ago. I'm going to ask you to do the same. Take your bulletin and take a pen and write down a practical way that you can serve somebody, that you can show somebody the love of Christ, a specific somebody, this coming week. And so just take a moment and write down a specific way that you can demonstrate the love of God, love of Christ, to somebody this week, and then of course then to follow through in doing that. It could be sharing a meal, it could be having a lunch with somebody, it could be mowing their lawn, it could be giving them a call, praying with them. There's a lot of variety of ways you can do this, but think of a practical way that you can show somebody the love of God this coming week. I'll give you a second to do that. So I'm going to conclude with Again, John's uh, definition of love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and for our sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are love. That you are self-giving in nature that you pour out your, your life for us through Jesus Christ. That you pour out our spirit to sustain us, to strengthen us, to correct us, to empower us, to fill us. We thank you, Lord, that you are love. Lord, we thank you for the love that you've demonstrated through Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. And Father, may we as followers of Jesus Christ also lay down our lives. In very practical ways. Not just in words, but in actions. We pray, Lord, that as we do so, we would be changed. Others would be encouraged and changed. And ultimately, our culture would change as well. We offer ourselves to you in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.